There are thousands of blog posts, tutorials, and videos that tell you what engineering careers are about, how you should be thinking about your dream job and promotion trajectory. In the sea of content, it's often hard to separate the common from the edge case. In this episode, I talked to Lori Barth, a renowned technologist and senior software engineer at Netflix, about the myths we encounter in our careers and what we can do to think about growth in a sustainable way. Enjoy the show. Lori Barth, welcome to the work item. It's so good to have you here on a Friday. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Our audience is mostly folks that are eager to learn more about how different people in the industry break into their careers. So let's start with your origin story. You have a pretty rich set of experiences. How did all of that come along? Oh man, this origin story goes back. I technically started coding when I was in probably middle school and high school. Um, like a lot of other people, I had a MySpace, I had a live journal, I was on Neopets, but I didn't really think of it that way. And in high school, I had to take a computer class and uh, we were using this program called Jurtle, which no one's ever heard of, but it's sort of like a, basically it's an instruction to move a little turtle around a page, like on a graph grid. I, I think it's, it's the Mac version of some other software that I was never really familiar with. And we had to write seven letters in the alphabet for our final exam. And we got an, a point of extra credit for every additional letter that we wrote. I wrote every single letter of the alphabet and my friends were struggling to finish like three of them. And they were so confused and just like guessing and checking. And I was like, but this is fun. And I still didn't realize that I liked programming. Like it would be five more years until I realized that I liked programming. So when I was in college, I studied mathematics and political science. And I worked at a polling center that did, you know, they did political polls, um, but they also did like healthcare polls and polls about school districts and principals and, and that sort of thing. And my boss there, I was a summer intern one summer and my boss there, Angie said, I didn't take computer science classes and now half the stuff I have to do requires figuring out database and code and scripts. So I'm making you do it. And I was like, no, 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 no. And she's like, I'm not letting you intern here unless you take a CS 101 class over the summer while you work here. And I was like, <sighs> okay. But in my brain, I was like, I'm not some genius boy who's been sitting in a basement coding since they were seven and playing around with their parents' machine. Like that was literally the thought process that went through my head. I'm not that person. I can't do this. But I really, I really enjoyed the class. And it was uh, in Java. And then I took 102. And that was also in Java. But I took them at separate campuses for my school because it was a summer summer class. So when I eventually transitioned back to my campus, getting out of the 100 level, all of a sudden I had to get out of the 100 level of computer science and do it all in Python, which definitely not the same as Java. So that was sort of a mind breaking experience. But I got a minor in computer science. And then I went and worked for the federal government as a program manager for large technical projects. And while I was there, I was required to get courses towards my master's degree. And I had a bunch of friends and colleagues who were using that as an opportunity to get an MBA or like a cybersecurity degree. And I was like, no, I'm going to get a master's of science in computer science because I had a bachelor of arts in mathematics and CS. And I was like, well, those according to the federal government are not the same thing. So I went and I got my master's of science and I hated my job. And so halfway through my master's, I left and I got my first 
first programming job. And there's a lot of stories there, but I'm very much rambling and like, this is a very long story. So that is that is the start. Basically my internship boss made me is the short answer of a very long story. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that program with a turtle. And I vividly recall when I was growing up in Eastern Europe, we had two types of programming that we learned in, I wanna say like middle school. So there was Pascal, which was a real programming language. And then they shifted to like the Delphi version of it. And the other one was kind of what you're describing, but it wasn't <laughs> with a turtle, it was with an ant. Yeah, and you had the exact same thing. And I just vividly recall. And you just sort of move it around the graph paper. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. So it had the path that you had to draw out. But for some reason, I absolutely hated that program. It's like, just give me a real programming language where I can just write <laughs> it out and tell it exactly what to do. And these fake commands of like, go right and then left and down and up and right. And it's like, just no, just give me real programming. <laughs> but it's interesting you brought it up because I had the experience of the exact same program. Now, the other piece <laughs> of contrast is MySpace. And I also, <laughs> it's contrasting to the fact that so many people actually start with MySpace as their gateway to programming. You needed the cool, bold typing and the fun colors and the sparkle effects. I don't understand why that's weird. And the marquee, you know, the text that would just run across. I never did one of those. And I didn't realize until recently, like being on tech Twitter and people talk about the marquee element all the time like a lot of my friends had it and I never realized what was doing it and now I as my you know old adult self I'm like oh that's what that was <laughs> <laughs> now I want to add it to my own blog so I have the little marquee auto playing music that's another component yep you got to do the retro throwback like it's it's gotta but it can't just auto play any music it has to be either one of the top five like female solo artist ballads or an emo song. Those are the only two options. Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys was the other one that I, like, every once in a while you'd... I think I was a little too late to MySpace for that. Backstreet Boys was when I was in, I mean, they were definitely still around when I was in like middle school and high school. But when I, what, I didn't get into MySpace because I don't think I, like my parents really appreciated me having a social network. So I didn't have it until like, I think eighth grade or ninth grade. And at that point it was all AFI and something corporate and all the emo bands, all the emo bands. There's a, there's a lot to unpack with kind of the MySpace journey, but I want to actually ask something. You mentioned that you work for the federal government and I don't really talk to a lot of people that have that experience and then went into programming. How do those two contrast to working say in the tech industry? So it's very interesting. I'd say the main difference is the federal government is more like a large enterprise company in the private sector in the sense that it takes a lot longer for the security team and all of the systems to use new technology. So like the, the joke is Windows XP had a longer life because the federal government wasn't ready to migrate to the next version of Windows. So they paid for it to not be sunset. And it's that sort of stuff. It's not like you can download the latest Java SDK. You've got to wait until it's approved. So you're probably working on, you know, a much older version of Java. The other thing that's interesting, and this was sort of the experience I had, it's not true everywhere, of course, but the federal government goes through these sort of ebbs and flows of they want to appear to have a smaller workforce. It's, you know, politics. And when they want to appear to have a smaller workforce, they hire contractors 
who aren't technically federal government employees, but they're doing all of that work. And so what you'll find is because this happens so often and the federal government itself is a bureaucracy that's trying not to change too quickly, they've made it so that the owners and managers of these projects are civilians, but the people who actually do the work and write the code are contractors. So I was the program manager of technical projects and I thought that would mean I was an architect and I was like, no, it meant that I was dealing with the contract of the contractor who was doing all of the work. And I was just there to like catch whether or not they were estimating things wide, wildly incorrectly or taking way longer than they should have or delivering something that was crap quality. Completely different from the typical pro program or product management that you see in the tech industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, it's different in like the federal government is a very large place. This was the agency I was working at and it just, it, it was all meant to fall. Like part of the reason they were hiring people straight out of school into this program was because they wanted to train them to have the technical, like they brought in people who had the technical expertise and then they were training them to add the business knowledge so that they had people who could both understand the technical conversations and follow the right business rules. And I was like, I didn't go to school and like work this hard to understand how to, how a computer works just to tell, just to make sure someone else uses it correctly. Like it wasn't fun. I hated it. I was there for two and a half years. And I think I cried more days when I left work than not because I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy. I was bored. I didn't feel like I was doing meaningful work. It wasn't the work that I wanted to do. Rent was really expensive and I wasn't getting paid particularly well. And eventually I was just like, I'm done. I'm leaving. And it, and it was terrible because this was my dream job. Working at the intersection of technology and government matched my background. Like it was the perfect thing. It was something I was really interested in. And I've said this a lot in public, but it's really hard to get what you want and realize that it's completely wrong for you because you have no idea what you're going to do next. You're like, what, what does that mean? Do I stay because everything else is going to be worse? Cause this was my dream job. So clearly it's the best of the options. And it's, it's scary. It's a scary thing to do, to decide to just leave and try something that you had no expectation of ever doing. I was, I mean, not everyone is that well planned out that they're a 21 year old doing their dream job, but I was, and then I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> what, what, what happens now? So let's talk about that concept of the dream job, because I'm curious about your take on it. Is a lot of folks attach it to a very specific company or career track. Mm -hmm. Does it hold up? And if not, what is the litmus test that you decide that, you know what, time for me to move on? Yeah, so I definitely attached it to a specific industry. It was less a job and more of the place I was working. And I think that was part of the problem because coming out of school, you don't have a, like, unless you've interned in that role and even still, you don't have a good sense of what that job is. You just know the larger organization. And so I think that's one of the, the big challenges is, if you get to the right place, but you realize it's the wrong job, can you transition internally? And I was actually in the process of doing that and then bureaucracy sort of got in my way and it, it ended up being very fortuitous and exactly the right thing because I should have left no matter what. If you are, it doesn't really matter where you are in your career, but I'd say this is particularly true for people earlier in their career because they haven't experienced this yet. And so they don't have a good litmus test in their brain. If you really hate waking up and going to work, and if you're not excited about the things that you work on, 
and that's a privilege, right? Like not everyone is going to be able to make that change. But right. if this was your dream job, if this was the thing you wanted and you're really unhappy, it's probably not your dream job. There's better out there and there's a better fit for you. I think that's the scary part because a lot of people overcommit to this concept of the dream job. And I think like, well, I worked all my life for this. Yeah. And then this ends up not really panning out for what you expect. And it's scary to pull back and say, I was wrong. Yeah. And, and I would say like, I don't know that I believe in the concept of a dream job anymore. I think you can have jobs that you really enjoy. I think you can have jobs where the company is a really great fit for the culture and the balance that you want in your life. And I think you can have colleagues that you adore. A job is always a transaction because there's always a possibility that the company that employs you decides that they no longer want to employ you. And at that point, if your identity and your happiness is built around this job, that's that's a lot to untangle. Like it's, and and I'm not saying that a job can't be part of your identity. Like if you're that type of a person and in some ways in my career, I probably have been as well. Um, what I do is a big part of who I am, but it's not the only part of who I am. And it, what I do has very little to do with who I do it for. There's an article recently and I, it was in, I believe it was in New York Times about I will never fall in love with my job again. Yep, I saw that. The woman who worked at Google. Yes. And your point resonates so much where it's at the end of the day, you're hired for your skills, you're contributing, but this is not the family. This is not something that should replace your interpersonal relationships and the friends and your spouse and everyone else. Yeah, I think it's sort of unfortunate because so I read that article and I a lot of people had a lot of opinions on it. But I think what people don't recognize is there's a few things that sort of came together to make her experience what it was. And one of them is when you move away from where your college is and away from where you grew up right out of school and you start a job where the expectation is that you're there all the time and putting in a lot of hours and contributing a lot of things, that is your only source of social interaction. It will become your life because our generation has done a really terrible job of giving people opportunity to make friendships and relationships in places that they move that aren't part of their workforce. And Silicon Valley knows that and hires a lot of those people. So they have built a culture that gives them that outlet, gives them entertainment, gives them opportunities to socialize with people their age, all within the confines of their organization. And, and they've done it somewhat intentionally. I mean, there are obviously good reasons for doing it, but there's also, you know, slightly nefarious reasons for doing it. And so I don't begrudge her at all for the experience and the situation she found herself in because she was like 20, 21 and she didn't have a spouse. She probably didn't have any friends who lived in California. And all of a sudden she had lots of friends and it's completely natural and expected that they were all going to be people that she worked with. When I left college and moved to Maryland and started my job with the feds, all of my friends were colleagues. They weren't necessarily on my team, but every single one of them worked at the agency I did. Every single one of them. And friends that I had from college scattered all over the world. Friends that I had from growing up scattered all over the world. And none of them ended up where I was. And was the federal government as like insulated as a place like Google is? Maybe in some ways, just the way it's structured. I'm not there, you know, 10 hours a day, but you know, it's, it's a unique experience and that sort of a thing. So it's, 
it's very complicated. And I think we need to be looking at not necessarily what Silicon Valley is doing wrong and more how can we provide alternatives to people that allow them to have social interactions outside of their company and role. Right. And this is precisely what you're calling out, where we're spending just so much time at work that it naturally becomes your environment where you connect with people, where you start learning from them, you start hanging out with them. Sometimes I know that last year has been a little bit different than <laughs> your typical year in terms of social interaction. But still, just by, by virtue of just how much time we put into the work, our network becomes that. And it becomes very natural and it becomes very natural to overinvest in that. It's interesting because I think there's like a different extension to that that I've been experiencing the last few years, which is it's not my colleagues, but it is the tech industry. My closest friends are people who understand what I do every day, who can laugh about the fact that I decided to get a mechanical keyboard the other day, who can relate to, you know, the ridiculous Twitter drama that's going on, that sort of a thing, because that's where I am all the time. And it's better because they're not all consolidated at one company and they're not all consolidated in one place other than in my phone or my computer. They're not physically where I am. And and so it, it's not all that different, right? Like if I lose my job tomorrow, I will not lose those friends. That's different. But my friendships are slightly coupled to what I do is still an accurate statement. Right. And there's a lot that folks still need to do outside of work to build that network, right? Like Twitter is a good example. I love Twitter drama because sometimes you just get in and you see these random memes or references, and then you have a coworker that does a reference to one of the things that happened. You're like, I get it. But it takes time and effort to build that network. Yeah, my friend Amberly has this joke that talking to me is like Twitterception because she'll see, she'll be DMing me about something and all of a sudden a subtweet uh, based on our conversation will show up on Twitter under my, and she's like, it's, it's so spooky. Like, it's just like Twitter and you, it's all the same thing and it just mixes. And yeah, I mean, I don't think tech Twitter is something that everyone needs to be a part of. It, it's right. totally a personal decision, but it has been really great for me because I worked for a lot of small companies. I worked for a lot of all male companies and teams, and I got the opportunity to meet a ton of people who look nothing like me and don't have my experiences. And they gave me a lot of people to look up to and role models for what I can accomplish in this industry that I did not have, especially from people who looked like me. And it can be an outlet to just share your experiences and get feedback. Like oh, yeah. I think this is where the value of Twitter comes around for me personally. Is sometimes you're like, I'm thinking about this idea. And then somebody says, this is stupid. Here's why. And they're like, ah, yeah, you know what? It is. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, it pro definitely a double-edged sword there. Sometimes I'll just be tweeting, oh, hey, I did X thing. And someone's like, you should have done Y. And I was like, I didn't ask for your opinion. Thanks. You should have chosen Python instead of just, not the point. Not the point. <laughs> right. I, I had some, I wrote a post a few weeks ago about some of the tools that I use on my new work machine. And I just got flooded with comments of like, this is a shitty choice and this doesn't perform well and da, 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 da. And some of it was stuff that I'm required to use for work. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I don't have a choice, but I'm glad you know better. Like, <laughs> I never realized how passionate the Twitter mechanical keyboard community is because I had a post recently about one of the mechanical keyboards that I switched and I switched to a 60% one. And I had people DM me, it's like, this is a stupid choice. You will not be productive. And I was like, what? Like, what? What does it matter? You're not using this. I'm the wow. one using it. I'm the one. 
So I know that there are people who are big fans of mechanical keyboards. I have never had one. I ordered my first last night. So this is very new for me. I got tactile, but like pretty quiet switches. I went with the clear, Halo clears, I think they're called. And a silver board, like a space gray board. And um, I got pretty keycaps because obviously. And I'm very excited for it. But also when I told people I was getting a mechanical keyboard on Twitter, everyone was like, what'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? And I was like, I am not posting that until it arrives because I really don't want to deal with the regret of having gotten the wrong thing. Because I talked to Cassidy and Cassie Williams, who works at Netlify and is a mechanical keyboard expert. And I was DMing back and forth with her and she was super helpful. And I was like, I need one person's opinion, one person who I know is super informed. And that's all we're going with because I can't handle, I will have analysis paralysis and never order anything. That was me literally a couple of weeks ago because I was trying to figure out, okay, which keyboard do I actually need? And so many different switches and so many opinions about like, well, if you should go with Cherry MX, it's not really the right thing in 2021. It's like, what What changed in 2021? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I thought cherry browns were like the best thing. And I was talking to her and she was like, you can get basically the same thing as cherry browns, but better. And I was like, uh, uh, whatever you say. <laughs> as as you're saying that, I have cherry MX brown on my desk right now. So now I've started regretting my choice. No, do you like them? <laughs> I like it. It's, it's much better. It's much clickier than, I, th I had the Logitech one before, which was the Romer G, I think, the Switch. And I just did not like how it clicked and then at some point that keyboard broke so i was like oh okay that's an excuse to upgrade and i got the cherry mx brown and it seems okay i don't know i like the the not too loud as part. long as you like it who cares right 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 exactly <laughs> that's my opinion about literally everything in tech and i think it's it's when you have the experience that your credentials are discounted so the Bachelor of Arts thing, Masters of Science thing I said, it was it actually became an issue at one point. They were like, you have a bachelor, you have a Bachelor of Arts, not a Bachelor's of Science. I'm like, I'm halfway through a Masters of Science. They're like, it doesn't matter. I was like, great. So when you deal with something that archaic and ridiculous, you sort of become a champion for anti-gatekeeping in the industry. And so I spent a lot of time being like, it does not matter what other people think. If it works for you and you don't have requirements at your job to use whatever, do it. This is nonsense. Why do we feel like we, and, and here's the thing. Most of the people who are like, you should do X, Y, Z have only ever done X, Y, Z and it works for them. And therefore it must be the right decision. I'm like, have you tried these 50 other ways of doing this thing? No, you haven't. Please shut up. Yeah, right. And the example that I keep bringing up is every time you talk about any kind of web application, there's always going to be a debate of like, well, you have to put it in Kubernetes and you have to make sure that you configure it properly and use Netlif Netlify, which Netlify, fantastic tool. Love it. But when you get into these debates and she's like, it's, I just need an HTML page. I don't really like, do I need all this infrastructure for it? Do I need, do I really need? I use Firebase. I've used Firebase right. since I first set up my site. I probably could or should switch over to Netlify. I may at some point, but it was already set up and it works. So why am I going to change it and do more work just to use the thing that everybody else is using? Right, right. And there's good examples of pages like uh, the example I brought up in one of the other episodes was uh, Remote OK, which is a remote job board. It's literally an index.php file that generates $100,000 a month. It's amazing. Like it's that this is it. There is a server and an index.php file. That's it. I love it. I'm a fan. 
uh, simplicity at its finest. But we talked about so many things, mechanical keyboards, web applications. Let's get back to your career. And you had a, uh, again, different experiences at, you know, your NASA, executive officer of the president. So things that, wow, uh, wow is the, the word. What were the lessons learned in those positions, kind of looking back now that you know the things that you know now, what were some biggest takeaways? So in those early roles, and I was I was interns at all of those places, so I wasn't fancy enough to be a full-time employee. One of the things I learned was that your team matters a lot, like whether you can learn from and are included in opportunities to grow, that's a big deal. And the other thing I learned is that working on websites in the federal government is not particularly fun. <laughs> um, it's just a lot of like, at the time, Drupal and other CMSs, and it it was mostly updating like editorial stuff, and there wasn't a lot of actually. I mean, once the layouts are set, the layouts are set, and it's more about managing content than anything else. And it was great to see that because at the time, I didn't know enough code to know what I was doing anyway. It, it wasn't what I wanted to do long term for sure. So now you're a senior engineer. I'm curious because this is the question that I get asked a lot: is folks ask, okay, well, I just start now. I want to become a senior engineer at some point. So given all the experience that you have, what differentiates a senior engineer from somebody that is just getting started? What are kind of the skills and capabilities and the way they should be thinking about that would get them to that next level? Yeah, so we should actually talk about the context of the term senior engineer super quick before I answer this. Because I do think there's sure. something that, you know, sort of says someone who's earlier in their career and, and someone who's a little more established and might be able to answer questions or be helpful or someone who's learned architecture better. And, and and I'll get into that. We have done a disservice to people by overloading the term senior engineer. So when I was an intern, I was a web intern in both the places that I worked. And then I was a program manager. And then I think my official title was application innovator, but it went on my resume as software engineer. And then my next title was software engineer. And then my next title was staff software engineer, because I'd never, I'd had this generic consulting title of software engineer with no leveling to it. And when I finally got leveled, I was a staff software engineer. And then I left and I went to Netflix and I became a senior software engineer because that's the highest title that they have. So there's this like weird lack of equality between the different titles in the different places. But the bigger challenge is if you look at local places for the most part, so non-Silicon Valley places, unless you live in Silicon Valley, in which case those are local, I don't know what to tell you. If you look at smaller shops, not the big names, you more or less have a junior title, a mid-level title and a senior title. And senior is as high as you go right? Like that is the most experienced person in the shop. That's like your lead engineer. There might only be one or two of them. Then you get to the much more stepped version that Silicon Valley and other companies have adopted, don't get me wrong, that goes from like software engineer one, software engineer two, senior software engineer, staff level one, staff level two, senior staff, principal master or there's something above principal that I don't even know and distinguished engineer I think it's called that puts senior at like the third on a rung compared to other companies where it's the highest title you can attain there's nothing equal about that right so senior software engineer requires context and there there's a lot of people having issues with you know you can't be a senior software engineer after two years I'm like well when it's the second level on the rung of course you can if the ultimate goal is distinguished engineer, which is four or five levels above, of, of course you can. 
But if senior engineer is the most experienced person at the place who's supposed to be the architect and have 10 years of experience, yeah, no, probably not. So I didn't have any title. I was probably, I was a junior, but I think I was a junior before I ever had an official software engineer title. And I was probably still a junior when I had the official title for a little while. Then I was mid-level, then I was senior and I was senior. And then I became staff, but I never had any of those other titles. And now I'm senior again. I would say the things that sort of get you there It's not about years of experience, but there is a level of experience shows you patterns that work and patterns that don't. We always talk about the fact that software engineers are always learning. You start to get intuition when you learn all of these different things about what will work and what won't. And you get to be able to make better choices without all the context that you necessarily need. And that makes someone who can sort of help run a team or contribute at a higher level. Collaboration and communication is a huge part of it. If you are able to help level up your other teammates and give them opportunities to learn from you, and I think you can do that at any level, don't get me wrong, but when most of the things you know are things that you can share with others, that's super important. It's also super dependent on what your company is looking for and what the gaps on your team are. Oftentimes you're going to be elevated to a new position because you're doing something or able to bring something to the team that didn't already exist. That is a different conversation than glue work, which you will often get no credit for. Tanya Riley has a really good talk on that if you want to see that. But it's it's complicated. The answer is there isn't really a clear answer. And I that's frustrating. And I know that that's frustrating. And I don't know that I ever explicitly, clearly never explicitly got promoted to senior engineer. So I don't really know what it took and what pushed me over. Well, and it's interesting too, because you call out these different titles and it is so, so dependent on the company because sometimes you get into this mode where you see it's almost like wizard ranks <laughs> where you have these, the super senior staff engineer three, or you're like, what? Like, how do I even get there? It's also, what's interesting is that a lot of people also confuse that seniority comes with years of experience or just executing, executing, executing. And at some point they get to that some abstract senior level or staff level or whatever that might be versus it's really about the way you think about the problems, the way you empower your team, the way you get things done that everyone else feels like they're progressing. And it's less so about you just kind of constantly being in the mode of fixing bugs, fixing bugs, fixing bugs. And I'll be senior in two years because I've been doing this for two years. The more senior you are, the less code you write. That's not exclusively true. And it's not... It's not that you're writing less code. It's that you're probably writing less production code and solving fewer or implementing fewer tickets, solving fewer bugs. You're doing a lot of architecture meetings. You're doing a lot of like proof of concept for is this the right technology to pick? You are probably having weird conversations with your engineers about how did this bug came to be and how do we prevent it from happening again? Or why is there this weird architecture decision about permissions and roles and how do we fix it? And you're having a lot of meetings and you're writing requests or uh, RFCs. I never remember what those are. Those actually stand for. Request for comment? Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. But you're writing that or you're writing like a larger proposal for what the next section of work should look like. It's sort of terrible to a lot of people. They're like, I don't want to do that. And I was like, yeah, you probably want to be a tool user. And the more senior you get, depending on the company and what their ladder is, you spend less time as a tool user. Again, this is one of those areas where, especially when you go into like the engineering management, it's the same way because you start thinking about people problems instead of 
code problems, which takes over. So one of the folks that I was talking to, those one of my mentors, they were telling me that once you start getting higher and higher up these ranks, for example, if you're a product leader versus an engineering leader, your roles kind of converge. Oh yeah. Because you kind of start dealing with the exact same stuff and less about the day-to-day code, here's, I'll fix this bug. So my joke about management, and it's true of team leads as well, and even if those are like technical coding engineer team leads, proving that you're doing a good job is harder the higher you go because what you're supposed to be doing is a lot less clear and a lot more nebulous. And you are making sort of fly by the seat of your pants choices about what to prioritize. And most of the time, you don't know what you're going to work on in any given day, any given week, any given month, any given quarter. You are putting out fires and reacting to things. So how do you prove that you're doing a good job when everything is reactionary? I don't know. Literally no idea. So yeah, I have no desire to be a manager anytime soon. Well, how do you quantify empowering your team? Your team feels empowered to make decisions. Like, can you put a number to that? Not really, right? It's hard to say. Most of the squishy stuff, most of the hard problems, they're not easily measured. And companies that try and measure them, especially in a super like numeric way, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. And everyone's going to leave frustrated and feeling like it's arbitrary. And once it's arbitrary, it stops mattering. And meaningless metrics are worse than no metrics. Right. What is it? I think it's the Goddard's law where it says like once you start, once you define a metric and start measuring it, like all the progress will start going towards hitting that metric instead of doing the actual real work. Right. Like the same thing when managers think about like the burn down. It's like, oh, how many bugs we fix per month? And then you start addressing like not all bugs are equal, right? Like some of the bugs will take you a month to fix. So you fix one bug versus the five the month before. <laughs> but now it seems like you're performing worse. Yeah. And then no one fixes the bug that takes a month. And it's the one that affects 95 percent of the users versus all the other bugs only affect five percent. Right. Right. And it took you a month. But if you look at just the numbers, it seems like this month you've been doing worse than the month before, because last month you fixed five, this month you fixed one. Is it a management failure? And that's why, that's why you know, companies can have metrics. And I know there's a lot of people doing really interesting work in this space. Like Sarah Drasner posted, um, she put out a post on CSS Tricks about IC ladders in terms of what the responsibilities for each given job title can be and how you support them as a manager. And there are people who understand this and are doing work in this space. And it's not as arbitrary as I'm making it sound, right? But I would be lying if I said there wasn't a huge amount of luck that was part of me having the title that I have now. I never had to sit down and prove to one company that I was deserving of a promotion. I was a consultant and I was working with all sorts of different companies within a larger consultancy umbrella, but we didn't have any titles, right? I just sort of like went and did my job. And then when I applied to Gatsby, I had to sit there and explain why the experience that I had matched a staff level two title and they agreed with me, but the staff level two title was for an engineering role on the learning team. So I was doing a lot of documentation stuff. I was doing a lot of communication. I was doing a lot of DevRel. And then I transferred internally, kept my same title, but I was all of a sudden an individual contributor in the code every day, but I was still staff. So all of a sudden I made that transition. And then I went to apply to Netflix and it's like, well, yeah, of course you're a senior engineer. You were staff level at a hot startup. Did I do any of that or like have to go through some of the nonsense people have to go through? Absolutely not. So luck is a huge, huge part of it. And I, I hate saying that, but it's true. Though I will say when you interview with a lot of different companies, so I interviewed with a fair number of companies before deciding to go to Netflix. 
And a lot of them had sliding scales. So they had job openings. And then based on how I performed in the interviews would be where they pegged me. And that's another opportunity to sort of get a different title than the one you have now because you have to perform. And I have my issues with interviews and some of them are super challenging and they're not necessarily a great benchmark. But if you can apply your skills in a way that's advantageous in an interview, then you're more likely to get pegged at a higher level than you currently have. You're so spot on with the lock part because I hear stories about people having these promotion committees where you have to write a document and outline everything and they go in front of five people and explain. And so it sounds so ridiculous. Yep, the feds do that. I had one promotion when I was there and I was up for a second that I I think I would have gotten. It was all about numbers. So the organization I was under had a higher number of promotions that they were able to give than like the sibling team. And so it had little to do with how well I did versus my friend on the sibling team. It had to do with how well I did within the given lake of possible people getting promoted based on the number that was available to that leader. And it's it's very arbitrary. And, and so luck is not just a huge part of it, but who is your management chain? Because in these places where you have to write this big thing up, it goes all the way at the top and managers are competing against managers for the headcount to get promotions. And if that's the case, then how persuasive your manager is and how well like yes. they are matters a whole lot more than how you did. Oh my goodness, yes. Th this is again, so spot on because your manager is the advocate for you when it comes to promotions. And it's completely out of your hands as to how far they're willing to go to go to bat for you and say that this person actually deserves to be promoted when somebody else's arguing says, no, this other person deserves to be promoted. How much are you gonna push back on that, right? And it's completely out of your control. And this goes back to manager skill set as well. It's like, do you want the manager who's gonna be able to advocate for you once a year? Maybe, but are they miserable to work for the rest of the time? Maybe, versus the manager who's like reasonable in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but isn't necessarily the best advocate in a larger room because they're quiet or more reserved or more even keeled. Like, man, I don't, it's all broken. <laughs> it's all broken. And, and I think some of it comes down to companies don't necessarily do a good job of determining what skills are actually providing value. It's the same with interviewing and hiring. If you don't have a good sense of what your team needs, but also if you don't have a good sense of why you're existing high performers, what makes them high performers, then you're, you're going to fail at promotion. You're going to fail at hiring. You're going to fail at a whole lot of things. One of the first things I started doing when I got my very first full-time coding job was I thought back to the interview process that I did okay at, but most of the reason they hired me was because when they corrected me on how to do something, I was like, oh, cool. I didn't know that instead of uh, uh, like flustered or annoyed or anything like that. I was very open to it. I was like, cool, great. Cause I was just like, this is an opportunity to learn. I'm not going to get this job. They changed the interview shortly after I joined. And I felt like I was doing pretty well. And my, my boss agreed. He was like, no, you've done very well here. I was like, okay, so you changed the interview process. I would not pass this interview. So if I would not pass this interview and you think I'm doing very well here, there's a disconnect because if my colleague over there would pass the interview, but you're frustrated by how he's performing right now, what are you measuring on? 
And what signal are you looking for? Because you seem to have picked the wrong one. That's why I'm so glad that there are efforts to change that and we're moving away from the whiteboard interview, which to me, again, it's another concept that just sounds so ridiculous. Like you're putting somebody in a super stressful situation and ask them to come up with a bunch of code that works without the tools that we use daily, right? Like if somebody puts me in front of a, you know, a notepad and says, okay, write the code that parses out a part of a string with some, you know, regex. What, can I, can I Google it? Like- I have not had to do, I, I think I've only done one ever, like a true whiteboarding interview. I think everything else I've ever done is in an IDE. I've done a lot of whiteboard like systems architecture interviews, but those are different because that's, that's the tool you use, right? Like some UML diagram or whatever. My bigger issue is we seem to have replaced the whiteboard interviews with something I think is just as toxic, which is a generic third-party algorithms test that is timed yes. and automatically submitted with no context on like what they were working on or how it went or any of that code agility or something I heard about the other day. There's carrot. There's a bunch of these. There's a bunch of these. Some of them are in person and it's like a third party person is actually walking them through the exercise. Some of them are just like a lot of the remote college tests where it's timed and you just have to get it done and do a solution. And I'm like, that's so toxic. Like that's just as bad. It's arguably worse because there's no human to help you. If you go down the wrong path, you just go down the wrong path. And it's, it's a crapshoot. And again, it's not indicative of real performance because when I'm working with a team, I can ask somebody for help when I get blocked or the ridiculousness of the kind of the interview process in this context gets to the point where who was it? I think it was the the person that wrote Homebrew for macOS interviewed, I think for Google or somebody and got rejected. Like I literally wrote the software that all of you are using and he was still not good enough to join the team that he was interviewing, which sounds ridiculous because he was put through this very formal process of saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, you're not fitting our criteria, but okay, sure. I might not, like, if you put me on the spot right now and say, can you like reverse a linked list? I probably won't be able to do that. But if you put me on the spot and be like, okay, well, here's some C-sharp code and can you make sure that, you know, the Windows machine doesn't go to sleep with some API? Yeah, I'll figure it out, I'll build it. Oh, I can't do that. What you just described, I can't do. I've never coded C-sharp. But it's still, it's because again, the, the, the different talents. And that's why generic interviews are terrible. And I, I came across a few of them in this last round and I really hated them. I was like, you're hiring me for a specialist role and you're asking me questions that literally have nothing to do with the job at hand and it's nonsense. But the thing I try and tell people about interviews is it does not help, especially when you're trying to break into the industry. It doesn't make you feel any better. It's just like, well, it's broken. Right. It's not a good solution. But if you're feeling down about your skill set as a result of an interview, know that an interview is a gamble. It is a game of chance because you can never study every single algorithm. Even if you've studied, I mean, you can study more algorithms, but like, should you have to do that? That's a whole other debate. When you go to an interview, you may have seen the problem before and you may know the data structure that's needed to solve it super well and you're going to do fine or it may be something you have absolutely no comfort comfort level with so if anyone were to give me something that involves like a hash map these days psh, no problem done like solved if you tell me it's a tree in javascript i'm like don't really use those if you tell me it's a linked list certainly don't use those like I could probably make an attempt. If you tell me it's recursion, I'm like, okay, I can probably do that. That's fine. It's chance. It's entirely chance. You're never gonna know 
all of the potential iterations of an interview question and you're not supposed to because if you do then you've had to spend way too much time studying that's really not fair and like i get it i i I understand why people do it i'm not telling them not to do it but if they're feeling defeated understand that it is chance and the same applies to any kind of interview and this again the conversation that i have with some folks that i help mentor where sometimes they would come in very frustrated and say you know what had these five interviews, I failed at all of them. Clearly, I don't know anything. No, you just, there's a good component to exactly what you just described of luck. Who was the person interviewing you? How they woke up that day and they were- Did they have a good day today? Right, like, did they have their coffee? (laughs) Have they had their coffee? Did, Did they like the way that you started the conversation and the tone of your voice when you said, hi, nice to meet you? Like, literally, we have so many- internal biases, but not, I mean, biases. Yes, that's a, that's a whole other thing, but you can have like a gut check instinct reaction that just isn't good. And it's, and regardless of what you tell yourself, it's going to cloud the way you see a candidate. It's going to. Plus, I think what we have to recognize right now is especially in the entry level, entry level job market, and especially in web dev, this is very, very true in web dev, almost every single person they're interviewing could do the job. And so they're coming, they have to start finding differences and sort of pick the best of what they can get, which is normally going to be someone with a lot more experience and a lot more skills than they initially were asking for, because there's just a huge number of people with very similar profiles right now. And how you stand out in that pool of people, I have no idea. I wish I did, but it's very different than what I was looking at 10 years ago. Oh my goodness. This again, this is strikes a very astute point that I had a conversation just the other day about how do I stand out? The answer is like, have a portfolio website. I don't know, have a GitHub profile, but then everyone has a GitHub profile. There's a couple things that come to mind. And I I say constantly that I don't want to give advice in this area because it it's not at all what I experienced many years ago. And I've hired people, but I haven't hired a, a bunch of juniors. So there's a couple things that come to mind. One is if you've heard of the company, Everybody else has two and they're all applying to work there. So stop looking at the companies you've heard of because you don't need to have some flashy name as the first job on your resume. It's actually easier if you have any job on your resume. So go find a local place that's hiring. Go find a smaller shop. Go find a place where you're going to get a lot more individualized attention. Is it going to have as, you know, defined of a process and an onboarding experience as you would have had at the larger organizations? Absolutely not. But is it going to be sufficient? Yes. The other thing I would say is, yes, having a profile for people to point to matters. Yes, having GitHub contributions, all of that. But in the process of doing all of those things, meet people, make connections, make friendships, don't network, don't network for the sake of asking someone, hey, I like your company. I applied to a job there. Everyone can see that. But If you make friendships with someone and you say, hey, I applied to this job, do you have any advice? And it's not at their company, right? They're gonna be like, oh, I have a friend there. I'll I'll drop your name. Or they're gonna say, yeah, let me see your resume. Happy to help. Like use the resources of the community rather than trying to find individual people who can help you with an individual goal. I I like that. I like that also because it applies to how people seek out even mentors before that. I get LinkedIn messages of people like, can can you be my mentor? And it's completely a random person, never met them. I have no idea who they are. Instead, why not come in and say, hey, I see that you are working at this company with this role. 
And I see that you have experience with this. I actually have this one challenge. I'd like to get somebody more more experienced to look at and give me some feedback. What do you think about some you know 20, 30 minutes, right? It's a complete, it changes the conversation. And I have to be kind of transparent about this. I get so many individual DMs either asking for help or asking for mentorship. It is very rare that I respond to any of them. And it's not because I don't care. It's really not. But I had to choose about a year or two ago where to put my time, especially in terms of helping sort of newer people. And I decided to do things that could scale and help more than one person. So that's a lot of the blog posts that I write. It's a lot of the courses that I make. It's some of the tweets I put out. But on a one-on-one individual level, it is very rare that I can help people. And it's not that I don't want to. It really isn't. It's just I don't have enough time. And I feel badly about it. But for the most part, I don't answer those messages because it, it's just not resourcing that I that I can do, unfortunately. Right, because a lot of people assume that they're the only one that reached out and all of a sudden, you know, they're being ignored versus, no, this person is visible in the industry. They get tens, if not hundreds of these requests. And having a mentor-mentee relationship, you're not gonna meet with that person for 10 minutes. They're gonna spend, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour discussing things and now multiply that by, you know, 50 people, that's 50 hours. That's a lot of time. <laughs> it's a lot of time. And honestly, I don't, I don't know how helpful I would be as a mentor in certain avenues. I mean, it really depends on what people are looking for. And I think a lot of the times people are just like, I was told to get a mentor, so I'm gonna get someone who's visible, who I think, who I like. And I was like, that's awesome. That is super awesome. But where do you live? What part of the industry do you want to get into? What code is interesting to you? What have you been working on? What are you, are you looking for code review? Are you looking for sponsorship to help make connections to get a job? Like all of those things are very, very different. And it is rare that I'm going to check the right boxes for people. I am much more able and willing to sort of work with people I've come across, whether it's in my teaching or, you know, colleagues that I've had or people that I've just interacted with a lot who I who have put something out. Like if you put out something out into the universe and we've interacted a lot before, I'm probably going to send you a message and be like, can I help? Because I see something that I might be able to provide value for. But when I get unsolicited messages, it, it there normally isn't enough context there. And sometimes there is. And I'm just like, why did you message me? Like I, there was someone who was like, I want to work at Netflix, I'm an expert in C-sharp and functional programming. And I was like, I I don't do any of that. Like, I don't know how I can help you. And that was, if I'm going to be transparent, that was the hardest part about announcing my job at a visible company was I got a lot of messages from people I had never interacted with before who was, who were just like, I'm interested in working there. And I'm like, I haven't even started yet. I, I can't help you. And I don't know you. And so now I sort of feel uncomfortable because, and it's, it's not even like, this is someone who's followed me for a long time. Like, this is someone I've never interacted with before. And the tweet just happened to get on their timeline. And they're like, oh, someone I can DM who works at Netflix. And I was like, I can't help. Even if I knew you and I could vouch for your work, which I don't, I have no say in who gets hired at this very, very large company. I don't work there yet. And when I work there next week, I still won't have any say. <laughs> my, my favorite in this context is, and I got burned by that a couple of times when you set up these mentor calls and you're like, okay, this person, you know, I'll, I'll dedicate some time. I'll carve some effort into talking to someone and understand that they have some 
problems they want to resolve and get some feedback. And you get on the call, and the first thing they ask is like, can I get a referral to the company? You're like, okay, like, didn't you set this up? You have a, no, 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 I don't have a challenge. I just wanted to make sure that I talked to somebody that works at company X because I want a referral and that I want to just apply myself. It's like, that seems not the point of mentorship. Yeah, and, and I get it. Like, it's unfair for me to come down on that because a lot of the, I mean, Netflix doesn't really do referrals, but like a lot of the companies I applied to in this last batch, I had a referral and I had someone messaging a, a manager saying, hey, like I know Lori and she's applying and she's awesome. But those were based on relationships that I've had for the better part of a year or two that were never about me going to work somewhere. And I talk to those people constantly. I still talk to them. I talked to them before we play video games together or you're like, we commiserate about whatever thing is happening in tech land. And so I, I quietly said, I didn't even say I was applying to a job at their company. I said, hey, I'm thinking of leaving my company. Let me know if you have heard of anything, expecting that they'd know other places because they are visible in the industry. And sometimes that meant they were like, oh, we have an opening you should apply for. Or sometimes it meant my friend has an opening you should apply for. I'm going to get in touch with them. And I get the luxury of, of doing that because I've been around a while and I've been visible a while and I have this network and I... So I can't come down on people who do the same thing, who are just starting out and they're like, well, how do I get to have all those connections if I'm not supposed to try and get those connections? I'm not saying don't try and build relationships. What I'm saying is do so in a genuine way without expectation of getting things from someone because they notice and it, it doesn't feel super great and they're less likely to help you. If you are involved in the community, you're helping people, you're engaging with people, that's worth a whole lot more, a whole lot more. Is that transparency, right? If you're looking for somebody to kind of get you a foot in the door in the company, be upfront about it, that this is something that you're looking for too. It's not, don't try to cover it up and then like, I'll find an excuse to reach out to this person. And then once they actually get on the call with me, I'll tell them my real intent. Like that's, don't do Yeah, I have, fr I have like actual friends who saw I was working at, or that I was going to work for Netflix and they sent me a message and they were like, hey, we haven't talked in a little while, but like, I want to know about your interview experience. And I was like, not a problem. Happy to have that call. We have an existing relationship. Like, I trust that you're not just trying to befriend me to have this conversation. And I was like, and I probably can't help, but I'm happy to answer whatever questions you have because I know you wouldn't be reaching out if you didn't have questions. And it takes time. Right? Like the, even the same relationship that you're describing, you can't build it out in a week and say, all right, a week has passed. I'll reach out to them about the job now. Like, no, it takes some, that, like I said, that genuine aspect of you're interacting with this person because you are looking up to their work. You want to understand how they make decisions, not because they are your ticket to whatever company you want to work at. And I will say it's very rare that you're just going to have a relationship with a person at the place that you want to work. You're going to have a relationship with a friend of a person who happens to work the place that you work. And if you have a genuine relationship with that friend, they're probably gonna reach out to their friend. Multi-layered process. Six degrees of separation. Sure. Right, <laughs> right. But we talked a lot about a lot of things. And the last question that I have for you is for folks that want to follow in your footsteps in terms of thinking about their career, going into kind of the engineering track, one unconventional advice, what would that be? Writing matters. You're gonna do it a lot more than you think get good at it, it's going to be a skill set that um, sets you apart from other people. And getting good at writing is hard. So it also takes time. Very hard. <laughs> I have a liberal arts background, so that definitely helped. Uh, I wrote a lot of political science term papers through college and all of that. And I think I had a bit of a leg up, but like it, writing about technical things is a different skill set and it 
takes a lot of practice and a lot of time and it is never easy. So when engineers think that, oh, I'll just learn how to code, learn how to write as well. So Lori, been a pleasure having you here. For folks that want to follow you online, learn more about your work, uh, kind of get immersed in the adventures that you're in, where can they uh, look up to you online? Yeah, so I'm pretty well branded everywhere. I'm Lori on Tech on GitHub, on Twitter. My website is lauriontech.com. Trying to think of anything else. I'm Lori Barth as an egghead instructor, and my blog is on my site. So any guest posts I've done for things like a list of parts, CSS tricks, those are all there as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. 